Welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Al-Yafai. It's now week two of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan 2.0. Their sudden takeover of Kabul has drawn echoes of the fall of Saigon more than 40 years ago and provided the world with harrowing images of people desperate to get out of the city. In this podcast, we will speak to three reporters who have been on the ground in Afghanistan before, during, and after the fall of Kabul. We'll hear first-hand testimony of what it felt like to see members of the Taliban walk unopposed into a city they were exiled from 20 years ago, the brutal way the Taliban have dealt with opponents in recent weeks, where the long war against the Taliban fits into the wider war on terror, and what they might do in the next 20 weeks, 20 months, and maybe even longer. First, we'll hear from Shelley Kittleson, who has been reporting on the country for years, from her reporting in other parts of Afghanistan in the run-up to the fall of Kabul, she says it was clear the Afghan government couldn't hold on, but that, even so, people were shocked at how quickly Kabul fell. People did not think that it would fall that fast, and it really shocked most of the people that I knew. Um, but were, were you surprised by it? Because you had been, you'd been in Kandahar, which was previously the capital of the Taliban before it fell. And it seems even then it was clear that the Afghan administration couldn't hold on to it. Uh, yeah, I was in Kabul, Jalalabad, Nangarhar, Mamandara, etc., um, the eastern part of the Nangarhar province, which is on the so-called border with Pakistan, prior to going down to Kandahar. Uh, yes, when the border crossing started being taken, um, especially, for example, Islam Qala at the beginning of uh, July, I believe it was maybe July 9th, when the Taliban took a major border crossing with Iran um, and then took quite a few other important border crossings. It was clear that most likely, of course, they would at some point take over, if not the entire country, all of it, except for some people said maybe Kabul will not be taken. Maybe they'll be able to hold off on that. Um, but it was clear that they had the upper hand and that they were advancing quite quickly. Um, when they started taking the provincial capitals, one after another fell. Um, when I was in Kandahar, they had taken, the Taliban had taken some of the districts of the city. Um, of course, the region of Kandahar is divided into several districts. And then the city of Kandahar also has what's called police districts. And they had taken some of these police districts and most of the districts in the actual province of Kandahar. Um, but they still, the Afghan government forces still had the center of the city and some of Daman and, and Don and some of the districts around the city. Right. And they were fighting, which was something that um, we hear from people abroad in, in the U.S. and other places that the Afghan forces didn't fight. And I can definitely say, having been there, that they did fight, uh, perhaps not all of them. And uh, there were deals made clearly to hand over some cities. But I did see some fighting every night. Uh, the fighting started at around 6 p.m. and then continued throughout the night. Do you have an explanation then of why some parts of the Afghan police and army folded so quickly? Um, morale is a definite factor that I don't think we've taken into consideration enough. Um, they saw the U.S. pulling out 
they continued to hear uh, that the, the Afghan government would fall quickly. Um, there were quite a few ghost soldiers. Clearly, there's corruption. Um, the, the, the Afghan army was not, I don't believe, 300,000, or the Afghan security forces total did not number 300,000, which was a number that was kind of thrown out there quite a lot. Um, and, and, and other reasons. But yeah, there was also clearly the release of, of 5,000 Taliban detainees the previous year as a result of an accord between the Taliban and the US. Uh, the Afghan government was not happy about it, uh, but they complied with it. Um, and I mean, a lot of the guys that I spoke to, the soldiers were very unhappy about this. I mean, they lost their comrades. Uh, fighting to take these people, to capture these people, thinking that they would be good for intelligence, but also that they would not be released that easily. Um, mm. And I mean, I That must be a, a big mm. part of it. You talk about morale. That must be a big part of it, that when you have a deal like that, 5,000 fighters is, is, a, is a lot of people to be Absolutely. released. And it must create the sense that what are we really fighting for if just after maybe a couple more years of negotiation, all these people that we've arrested will then be released? Exactly. Yeah, no. So, I mean, at that point, it's like, why would we even arrest anyone? We'll kill them if we can, but we can't really trust the other forces. I mean, there's a, a lack of trust, you know. Um, if, if the local police were in front, I saw on some of the front lines, the local police were in front of the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Army in Kandahar. Quite a few of them were from other areas, clearly the north, the east, um, and, you know, if you don't know if you can trust the people around you that you're fighting with, um, that affects things quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. especially in a, I mean, in a war situation. And, and of course, with Kabul, I mean, Kabul was the last place to fall. So if you feel like there is a domino effect and everybody else is collapsing, you think to yourself, well, let me just melt away into the crowd. And at least I save myself and I save my family. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if you, I mean, you, you move between these different worlds, Shelley, you know, between the West and the Middle East and, and Asia and so on. Do you get the sense that the story of Afghanistan as it is told in the West is, is either badly told or very different from the story perhaps you hear in India or in China or something like that? Um, well, I don't, I don't go to India and China, so I can't really um, talk about that. I can speak about the fact that Syrians see it very, very differently from the way that Americans see it, uh, and Afghans see it completely differently. Um, and I've heard so many comments from Syrian friends. I've, I've worked extensively. I worked extensively in Syria in previous years, between uh, 2012 and 2000, early 2015. I was going in and out of opposition-held areas of Syria, Aleppo, Idlib, Jabal Akrar, etc. And since then, I've been to Deir Azor several times. Um, so yeah, I have many Syrian friends and contacts, and they have a very different view of the situation on the ground. They they compare it to they think that the Taliban is Ahrar al-Sham or one of the opposition groups, um, and they don't understand that the country is is a very very different country from what they imagine it to be. And of course, the U.S. and the West have a completely different view altogether. Um, they still see Afghanistan as if it were the 1990s. 
um, as if it were still the Mujahideen and corruption and, and what else, and that the Taliban are coming in and creating a, a safe zone, that they're making people lay down their weapons and that everything will be all fine. And, you know, that's what people want, they think. Um, and that's not what I heard from Afghans on the ground. Um, and do you think that 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 difference in the way that it is perceived, for example, in the United States, do you think that that has an impact in the way the crisis is understood? Well, of course, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, cool. I, mean, I mean, yeah, I was going to say that I've noticed actually on your, in Motos in your reporting, but also actually in your, your Instagram, you highlight some of the, I mean, the lived beauty of the country. And I think these kind of images are not the kind of things we we see a lot about Afghanistan. And I think that does it does affect the way we think about the country because you see it as a, a study in crisis rather than this sort of living, breathing entity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even the way that we look at Afghan women, um, we tend to, in the West, think of them as either total victims that we can't really do much about, uh, that, that they're just part of a culture which is very, very alien to us. Um, and that we'll never understand each other. Or uh, we think of some of them as very westernized and not representative of the culture. But I mean, when you go there, and, and for example, in Kandahar, I met one young woman, a 26-year-old, who is the youngest member of parliament. She comes from a Ruzgan, which is a predominantly rural uh, province, uh, and several Taliban leaders come from that province. Um, she has spent her life between Iruzgan, Kandahar, and then as soon as she became a member of parliament, Kabul. Now, the Taliban leaders from there, they've spent quite a bit of their time in Iran and Pakistan, etc. But we still tend to think of the Taliban as more Afghan than someone like her. Um, yeah. She is 26. She has a degree in political science and law. She, prior to that, studied to be a midwife because that was what her father, Mullah, wanted her to do. She credits her uh, memorization skills, her dedication to hard work to her religious upbringing. Um, and we don't see that from America, these sorts of people. You know, we just assume that she's westernized because she's a member of parliament or that right. she's. And that's definitely not the case. Um, even in 2012, I went out to uh, I previously reported several times from Afghanistan, but it was several years ago, um, starting in 2010. Um, I was doing a radio documentary on justice sector reform um, in 2012. And I went out to uh, a university in Kapisa. And I met several women there that were studying law. And the thing that most of them said uh, that they had in common was that it was their fathers who encouraged them to study. Um, it was their fathers. One was from, I think it was Herat. One was from somewhere in the north, and they had been sent to Kapisa, Kapisa which is near the capital, um, to study. So they'd been sent away from their homes because their father was, wanted them to study law. Uh, and we don't see that in the West. You know, these aren't westernized people. These are Afghan women who have never been out of Afghanistan. Mm. That is interesting. I mean, I wonder, you must be in contact with a, a lot of different people. Do you get a sense of what the mood might be like among these different communities that you've reported on and spoken to? Um, uh, clearly, there's a rural-urban divide of some sort, as there is in every other country in the world. Um, but in terms of we in the West, yes, tend to want to say that the Pashtun community is one way or the Pashtun community is 
um, linked to the Taliban, that they support the Taliban. And that's not what I found. I mean, Kandahar and Nangarhar are both predominantly uh, Pashtun communities. And most of the people I spoke to were very, very much against the Taliban. Some of them said, yes, a, a political deal does need to be made, um, but they surely did not want the communities taken over by the Taliban that, no, they just, yes, they wanted the war to end, um, but they did not want to have to give up the rights, which they are most likely going to have to get up, give up now. Are you um, concerned about the people that you met in, I mean, who were against the Taliban, who spoke publicly against the Taliban? Do you think that they might have revenge taken against them? Um, I did get news that one of my interviewees was hanged after I left from Kandahar. He was a fairly wow. well-known uh, district police um, commander of Shawali uh, Kot, was, is one of the districts of the Kandahar province. Uh, his province had been taken by the Taliban by the time that I arrived in, in Kandahar, but he had been placed in, um, in control of, or he had been placed in command of a group of fighters, uh, local, all of them, to fight against the Taliban in another district. Um, and I had heard of him before I got to interview him. I, I had heard of him from several locals. They said, okay, in the city itself, um, we have 03, which is an intel unit, which was trained by the US, et cetera. And the Taliban are afraid of them in central, in the central part of Kandahar, but no one else. And a lot of people said that they didn't think the Taliban were afraid enough of the security forces or the justice system, clearly. Um, but outside of that, like in the uh, outer edges of the city uh, and from Ainomina, which is like a fairly wealthy uh, area, uh, and then to the rural areas going outside of the city, uh, this particular commander, Pacha, uh, he scared the Taliban in some way, which they thought, th thought was very useful. I mean, clearly, if your enemy is not afraid of the forces uh, that you have, um, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, um, I... I heard I was on Twitter so several people said yes that's true others said we don't know because there's just simply all the media have left I mean the the local media we had something like 300 cases that in the first couple of days that the committee to protect journalists said that they were assessing right then in terms of actual threat to them that they need to leave you know I mean if you've got hundreds of local journalists that need to leave in a country which you have to keep in mind has something like a 43 percent literacy rate we have under 50% of the people who even know how to read. So what we're seeing now is all of the educated people that have any chance of leaving are leaving if they can. Yeah, it's a huge brain drain. You can't blame them, though. I mean, when you you talk about your um, the person you interviewed who was hanged, I mean, that kind of thing makes people so nervous and terrified that, that if there's any way of getting out, they're not going to take the chance. They're just going to leave. Of course. And I mean, with no journalists, how are you even going to know if people like him are hanged? Yeah. You know? Do you have a sense now of what the Taliban might actually be like in control of the country? Or do you think it might be a little bit too early to tell? I think it's definitely too early to tell. I do know that in the Doha uh, talks, they lied repeatedly. Um, I can understand why you know, the local Afghans would not trust anything that they say. Um, 
those who've had experience with them in the former Taliban regime, or even people who were born afterwards and have heard stories, um, I can understand why they they, they just don't trust them. Um, and they feel like, you know, with these final flights out, if they don't get on one right now, they may never get out, you know. Yeah. Um, what do you think the the effect of a Taliban victory will be beyond Afghanistan? You've, re- you've talked about um, how it might be welcomed next door in Iran. Do you think the the wider region will accommodate them in some way? Um, I think uh, an authoritarian regime is often useful for uh, neighboring countries in various ways. Uh, Many of the Afghans that I spoke to in eastern Afghanistan um, said that Pakistan wanted Afghanistan to be weak, to be able to manipulate it, to be able to use it as, as it wanted. Um, and yes, of course, Iran has long been uh, supporting in some way some factions of the Taliban at the very least. Uh, that happened even before the Islamic State Khorasan province uh, came into, into being. Um, but after that point, then they were using the excuse that it's to fight ISIS. Um, with the local branch of ISIS, clearly, we typically will say ISIS, whereas it's IS, whatever. Um, so, yes, uh, I think that both Iran and Pakistan will be happy. I don't know if I can call it happy, but for whatever reason, um, their calculations said that it would be more useful to have a Taliban regime in place. For some reason, I don't, I, I, I do think it's too early to tell whether that will actually be true or not. It may come back and, you know, hit them in the face. I don't know. Um But, and I also don't know to what extent, I mean, a lot of Afghan politicians and officers, et cetera, were putting the blame only on Pakistan and were overdoing it possibly quite a lot. But we can't deny that Pakistan did have a role in this fight. Um, So I I don't really know at the regional level how much I can say on that. It's possible. I mean, they might be waiting as well to sort of see how the chips fall and then try to look for an influence where they can. I wondered actually what you thought, you're in Iraq at the moment, I wondered what you thought about the effect of the Taliban victory on, I mean, on other groups. For example, in Iraq, I was thinking about the um, the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces. If they are so opposed to the US and they look across and they say, well, the Taliban kicked them out, do you think they might feel, well, it's only a matter of time when we can remove all US influence from Iraq, not just the troops, all the officials and all the influence? Oh, I think they already think that. I mean, I don't think, I think that they feel that they've been quite successful in removing them from various parts of Iraq already. Um, they are basically confined clearly to Baghdad, Ain al-Assad and Erbil, uh, and mostly to the bases, I mean, in terms of the military. Um, in terms of just simply American citizens, uh, I don't think that they have so much of a problem with them. Uh, They'd like to see the embassy out, that, yes. Uh, They consider it to be a den of spies. They've said that many, many times. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know that they're so much inspired. I believe other other groups, perhaps, um, clearly Al-Qaeda, various branches have um, been very pleased about the Taliban takeover. Uh, 
but as far as hashish, as far as the popular mobilization units go, I I don't think that they are so happy about it. But I don't. Yeah, I, I honestly think that they already thought that they would be able to push the U.S. out of this area at some point. Right. I wonder how you feel then about uh, Afghanistan more personally. Um, as you were saying earlier, I mean, you've been back and forth over a number of years. You must have a lot of friends, colleagues, and so on in the country. Do you think you'll go back now? Uh, I would go back tomorrow if I could. Um, it's not. It's Mark not. A, a true journalist. I requested permission to go on one of the the flights to go back, um, but have not received a, a response. I've just asked the. Uh, yeah, I asked the U.S. military if I could actually go on the flight, and they could just leave me there. They haven't responded. Um, but yeah, I I, I don't exactly know how it will work in the coming months or weeks in terms of if commercial flights will fly again, how expensive they will be as a freelancer. That's always a huge issue um, because I pay my expenses, nobody else does. Uh, and so I have to work a second job just to be able to do my reporting, which cuts into the time uh, that I have to actually do it. Um, but yeah, if I could, I would definitely go back as soon as possible. I'd like to see how, how the Taliban react uh, to me, to other journalists. I, I do definitely believe I'm at much less risk than a journalist in Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, we'll see. we'll see. I imagine you'd have mixed feelings being on the ground. I mean, obviously there's a journalistic aspect, which is hugely interesting to be there. But then on a human note, I mean, you must have you know, friends and colleagues who are frightened or have had to leave their country. So I imagine it's sort of a mixed feeling once you get there. I would be concerned about putting other people in danger. That is, that would be my main concern um, in terms of if I wrote anything that might uh, be against the Taliban, if these people were seen as being close to me, as having helped me and so forth. I always have to be very, very careful about that in the areas that I work in both in Iraq and Syria and um, clearly Afghanistan now as well. Um, Do you feel in any way optimistic about the future of Afghanistan for the people, not necessarily for the politics of it? Um, optimistic. I, uh, I, I think that it will be worse in these past few years. I mean, clearly, I do think that progress was being made slowly um, in a very messy fashion um, with a lot of corruption. Uh, but there was progress which was being made. Um, we have definitely gone back, backwards. Um, do I think that it will be as bad as some Afghans were saying that now the Taliban are worse because they're more highly trained, uh, they've got more weaponry, they've got more power, just wait a couple of months and you're going to see that they're going to be much worse than any version before. I don't know. I don't know if they will be that, if they will be as bad as they were, uh, as cruel or as brutal as they were uh, in, as, uh, in the 1990s. Now, but yes, definitely, I, I do think that this was a huge loss to the country. And not only, uh, you know, losing its, its educated classes, uh, but losing the possible future opportunities that, that the young people would otherwise have had, had there been some sort of a messy uh, government, even if it were corrupt, uh, if that had 
if they had managed to continue with a republic, if they had changed the government but left the republic instead of becoming an emirate, uh, I do think quite a few people would have had better chances at living a better life. And that, I think, is one of the most difficult aspects to conceptualize being outside the country. This change that Shelley is talking about, going from a republic one day to an Islamic emirate the next. I asked Fazlmin al Qazizai, an Afghan journalist who lives and works in Kabul, what that day was actually like. It was um, Sunday morning. I was out uh, north of Kabul for covering some interviews um, with the desperate poor refugee that they left north of Afghanistan um, to Kabul to, to, to find a safe life. So I was covering the interviews that suddenly a young refugee in, in the camp, a young refugee child shouted on, on, on the resident that the police escaped. So the two police that they were assigned uh, for this take care of the camp, they escaped and it was around 11 uh, we heard and we watched in the roads, streets of Kabul that uh, crowds of people were running away to different directions. Military vehicles and convoys were blocking down in, in parts of these streets. And that was the, the first sense you had that the Taliban were now yes. actually going to yes. close in on Kabul? Uh, yes, it was um, it was the start of collapse. So still, the Taliban were outskirts of Kabul. But um, when I was seeing uh, the Kabul city, it was like um, watching um, a movie. All the traffic uh, jammed. Uh, the, the 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 vehicles were parked to each other like bricks of building. Everyone was giving up driving and riding their motorbike. They were just running by foot and, and calling each other, checking on relatives, making sure that everyone will uh, reach home soon. As I mean, soon it, sounded, as it sounded like there was um, panic, not just confusion, but real panic once the, the police... Was started... a real, it was a real panic, a real fear, and it was... Um, it was a sense that you, you, you could imagine it with a, a natural disaster or an earthquake or, or some things that uh, you, you will be thinking that it will be drowning me. Mm. So by watching the people walking around Kabul or, or running in different direction, it will give you a kind of feelings that the Kabul will, will be melt. Kabul will be drowned on, on, a, on a dark sea. But um, soon after, two hours later, uh, the last rest uh, and, uh, of, of the nation was um, uh, received back by a statement of the Taliban that they instructed uh, their fighters to stay out of uh, Kabul gates. And also they make a short <coughs> Kabul, <coughs> excuse me, Kabul resident that their forces will not enter by power. So this came a kind of new bread to the um, Kabul resident. And it was something like a big good news. People mm. were calling each other, checking on each other and passing the good news that, oh, the Taliban will not enter by force. They will I mean, come the, through peaceful. The, the, uh, the, the panic and the confusion was was, I, I guess, for two reasons. One, of course, because there was this sudden collapse of the central government. But then the other reason is that people were genuinely afraid that what had happened in 96 might happen again. 
Uh, yes, people were not worried because the government is being collapsing, because they were not in love with the government. They had the government, and the government was corrupt government for everyone, uh, not just only for the group. But they were panic and fearful because of their own safety and because of um, experiencing back the, the civil war and the brutality of uh, uh, 90s. Uh, so therefore, they were worried of themselves, uh, on their properties and their loved ones. This was the um, uh, biggest concerns. And as you are aware that we have, uh, the government, we have some government back at Malaysia and non-government Malaysia in Kabul from different minorities and from different tribes. People were worried that by the entering the Taliban inside the city, in the same time, there will be like a tribal uh, war between uh, different tribes of Afghanistan. And also there will be a way to a sectarian war or a religious war that we, we heard them or experienced them in the Middle East. This was the main concerns. But when the Taliban issued a statement assuring people that they will, they will not come by fight, they will not come by force, it was something um, great. It was a big news that even people were calling each other with happiness and passing them the good news that listen. The Taliban are not coming by force and everything will be solved by a uh, political uh, way through talks. Was there a moment that stood out for you personally? I mean, you've lived and worked there for a long time. You've followed this story for a long time. And it sounds like even you were taken by surprise at the at the speed of the fall of Kabul. Was there yes. a moment that's, that stood out for you? Yes. Um, uh, before that, I should say that all Afghan, including me, we were assured that one day, if there is no support of the air from the US, if there is no fighter jets drone of US army, the government will collapse ASEP. Uh, even we were assured that uh, the US special forces, Marines and top allied forces will not be able to fight with the Taliban without the air support. So, so you believe that? Sorry to interrupt, but, but so you believed that. You believed that there would come a day, not necessarily on the Sunday, but there would come yeah. a day when the Taliban would come back to power. Yes, yes, I believe that. And also, uh, not me, everyone believed when the U.S. air power is out, the Taliban will capture Kabul. But still, the speedy capturing of big cities, the city capturing of, uh, of capital Kabul, it's some things that uh, get everyone um, uh, uh, surprised. And you, um, you were right there in the middle of it. Did you yes. feel that? Did you feel that this was something that you, even though you expected it to happen, were you surprised that it happened then and there from the Taliban perspective? Were you surprised that they took that opportunity to go into Kabul rather than just waiting in the uh, the towns around it? Um, <clears throat> yes, but uh, let me make it clear that the Taliban stood for their words. So their forces didn't enter Kabul. We, we said on, on our places with full rest and confidence. But soon after, the news broke down that President, Pal uh, Pre President uh, fled from palace. We heard American fighter jets uh, sounds in the sky of Kabul. We 
uh, which American Chinook and Apache helicopters were just flying around shooting flares. This gave us again a, a, a kind of feeling to, to, to go back to the news channels, go back to tank and made us a bit wary. After two or three hours, the Taliban again released a statement and, and they say, our forces will enter because, because there is uh, no one to take care of the city. The police and the army abandoned their post, abandoned their station. Then I just uh, stand up and go out to, to check and, and do some footage of, of the entrance. And I was just in the police district five of Kabul uh, that the Taliban arrived. It was around 5 p.m. that they arrived. And it was um, amazing for me that they arrived to Kabul with motorbikes, with um, sandals mm. and with very poor uh, uh, and desperate condition. I mean, you mean, uh, so they just walked in, there was no resistance from the National Army or the police? There was no resistance. Um, uh, they, they just uh, ride their motorbike to the heads of Kabul. And it was Mahram. Here, uh, we, we, we are close to a neighbor, Shia neighborhood. Uh, so the Shia neighborhood always they have some security personnel, self-employed security personnel carrying light weapons. Um, they were establishing some checkpoints at night, searching people. You know they were a, a bit um, a military power, but right. when the Taliban arrived, uh, the police and the army abandoned everything. Even mm. the Shia minority that they were in Mahram. Uh, ceremony, they hide their weapons. They, they can, don't have sticks in their hands. The Taliban are uh, riding their bikes to the heads of the Shia uh, uh, area, dominated area. And it was something surprised everyone that, oh, how a Talib uh, with a bike and with just one clashing off can ride to the heads of the Shia dominated area. Yeah, in the capital, no less. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you personally how it felt. You said, you know, you walked out and you saw the Taliban come in. This is this is a, a group that hasn't set foot in the capital for 20 years. I wonder how yeah. you, you felt seeing that. Yes, I was thinking that um, if, if they arrived, lots of people will hide themselves uh, from the Taliban and they will not be happy to face them in person. Uh, because of because of the changes we have in Kabul, um, because of the new um, culture and the new um, changes that uh, came to the uh, Afghan society. For example, we have a lot of youths that they have tattoos in their hands, in their neck, and other parts of the body. And this is some things which the Taliban don't allow it. You know, they, they are against it. So I was thinking the people that they have tattoos on their arms or they have uh, um, a stylish belt or hair or they have army jackets, army shirts and pants, they will not be uh, happy to, to, to meet them or to face them. But when I see the Taliban in, in capital Kabul, that all people, including the people that they have tattoos, were posing for selfies with them, was trying to chat with them, was trying to be 
uh, talkative and nice. That was something that surprised me. And, and I was feeling that this will be a kind of uh, political uh, opposition to the Taliban. But I see that it, it's not. In fact, it's, it's something uh, uh, more better than we were imagining. I want to think about a, a little bit more about that because and about what this new Taliban might be like. Um, I wanted to talk about um, the article you published with us from Helmand province. And yeah. this was back in April after Helmand was really under the control of the Taliban, at least parts of it. And yeah. you, you, you talked about how you had met an insurgent who had said to you that he had been with, a, uh, with another insurgent leader and the insurgent leader said to him, don't give up. Uh, we have slaughtered yeah. and skinned the cow and only its tail is left. And that, yeah. in the context of your article, meant that the Americans were almost on their way out, that it only required a little bit more of a push and they would inevitably go. Does it feel, did it feel before the takeover that there was an inevitability to the Taliban takeover? Uh, yes, Yes, absolutely. There were too many signals showing the Afghan nations that the Taliban are winning. The Taliban were running very smart um, and out of corruption, the judicial system that even not, not ordinary Afghan, but uh, Afghan politicians, uh, which were backed by US, Afghan officials, which were uh, which would their salary were paid by the central government and U.S. Even they were reaching the Taliban court for solving their disputes. Taliban had a great policing uh, system, preventing crimes. Taliban had a very good moral police, which were looking after the drugs, which were looking after the addicts, which were looking after the um, moral issues in the society. Besides that, the Taliban had a great moral and fighting. So the, the, the simple Talib with the very poor clothes and shoes was able to fight with the top professional army of the world. And he was not giving up the fight. He was not giving up his uh, duty. He was not giving up on his uh, uh, position. Uh, there was a lot of other signals with the Taliban that showing all the nation that they are winning. They are in the age of building themselves as a, as a government in waiting. And meantime, there were too many issues with the Afghan government that it was giving a bad news to the nations that the government is looming down. The government is destroyed from inside or the government is getting weak uh, by the corruption and by the crimes that the, the ruling circles were, um, were doing. Um, so this was a bit clear to the ordinary Afghans. Right. It was obvious that, that they were going to um, take over at some yeah. point, most likely once the Americans yeah. um, withdrew their air support. Absolutely. I, I wonder, I want to still stick with your writing from Helmand. And I wonder if you think Helmand gave you an indication of what Emirate 2.0 might look like. Um, in particular, I was very struck in that article by how the Taliban governed different parts of Helmand in different ways. So I want to read a, a quote from your, from your reportage about yes, the town yes. of Musaqala. 
And you say mm -hmm. that uh, it was relatively unscathed by the kind of heavy combat that had decimated Sangin. It was bustling with life. Women walked the streets in headscarves, burqas, and niqabs. Uh, music could be yeah. heard playing from car stereos with no local telephone networks active in the area. People were allowed to use satellite phones and WhatsApp. Even the smoking yeah. of cigarettes and hookah pipes was permitted in public. And that was, you contrasted that with the conservatism of other parts of Helmand. I wonder if you think either of those two towns provide a guide to how the Taliban uh, might act going forward. Um, yes, absolutely. As you know better that uh, the Mulsaqala, the place that I report for the new line is the capital, the de facto capital for the Taliban. It's a place where the Taliban new Emirate leadership is based and it's the place where the Taliban cabinet, which they call them the leadership council is, is stationed there. So the the, the, the governance fees, which I report from, from Helmand, it shows um, a wider picture of the Taliban new Emirates or new government system to the nation. And um, that is some things we see elsewhere um, in the country that were captured recently by the Taliban forces. What do you think then about how Kabul might be uh, governed? Do you think it might be more like Musaqala, like there will be a little bit more openness than in other parts of the country? Uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure there will be some differences because um, in some other parts of the country which I visited and did some reports, the Taliban governance was a bit um, different than Musaqala. And it's because um, it's it's a it's a multicultural land. It's a multi-tribe land. Uh, so the Taliban will uh, show a kind of um, uh, willingness to compromise with other cultures, with other tribes, with other languages. Mm. Uh, Kabul as a capital that um, dominates many different tribes and many different cultures and many different languages. I'm sure it will be more open uh, than Helmand and there will be more freedoms provided for uh, men, women and foreigners uh, compared to the northern Helmand. And, and tell me... You... Yes. So, sorry, so tell me now, we're now in the second week after the fall of Kabul, the second week that the Taliban are in charge. What does it feel like for you in Kabul now? Uh, for me personally, it feels more safe, more secure. And I'm more confident than I was before. Uh, as you are aware, we have uh, lots of street criminality, um, which was a big concern for Kabul residents. And now we don't, we don't have that. We have a very big uh, problem with the youth uh, uh, going to drugs, using uh, different kind of uh, chemical drugs and, and opium. And they were using them openly in the streets. Then, then they were lying down in the streets. Uh, now we don't have this problem. In my neighborhood, the Taliban are not allowing the addicts to lie in the streets. Um, the Taliban arrest them. 
peace and security established. Um, yes, last night I was uh, at Kabul airport for uh, for um, uh, for for offering help to a relative. I see uh, 24 hours uh, shops were open, markets were open. There was no curfew. Security and peace is established. And as I told you before, that in a week uh, or, or or maybe in a 10 days, uh, even we don't have one casualty from all over the country from war, from conflict. Lots of people enjoying their lands, enjoying their farms, enjoying trips, enjoying movement in their own areas. This is all great. And I feel more safer, uh, more, more secure than before. But yes, uh, there are some concerns which are natural um, that, that everyone will have with a big change. And some mm -hmm. other concerns regarding the Taliban ruling system, regarding the Taliban uh, policy and strategy toward uh, the, the young generation, our education system, our especially our trade and economic um, uh, issues. Uh, that is true. We we have concerns, but regarding to safety and peace, we are in a better environment than we were before. P politically, do you think that the Taliban do have a new outlook on things? You mentioned um, security and crime but in a broader sense do you think that they have changed that they are different from from the 1990s absolutely um, uh, as you read uh, about the taliban that even inside the movement structure their organizational structure is reformed it's much updated before the taliban leader uh, were not happy that higher a deputy the reason for that was that he, they were saying, oh, the Prophet Muhammad didn't have a, a deputy. So why we should do? But now they have uh, not one deputy, but, but they have many deputies. Mm. Um, and, and the Taliban um, governance system is updated compared to the past. The Taliban political um, argument and political logic is completely different than, than before. The Taliban military technique and, and war uh, method is totally changed than, than the 90s. I think the Taliban are in the new modern world. Um, they are enough strong in, in, in different aspects of this new world. And I'm sure uh, this time Taliban are uh, um, in a different world, totally changed, but strongly uh, compared to the past in all aspects of life. Do you think that, you seem very optimistic, do you think that there's a chance that once the eyes of the world move on, once the, the, um, the airport security is brought back under control, once the Americans have left properly at the end of the month, do you think there's a chance that the Taliban will decide to change how they are? Um, I am sure there is a chance, uh, but um, because um, the Taliban are also facing strong um, oppositions. So the, the younger generation, the, the access to the technology, the connection with the world, they are all um, the, the obstacle and issues that can control Taliban uh, from running a totalitarian regime and giving up to all the commitment that they are 
um, giving to us right now. So I think there is a chance for the Taliban to give up, but um, also there is many chance for the Afghan nations to, 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 to stand against that and force them to, commit, to be committed to what, what they are saying right now. Fazal Minallah's optimism and his belief that the Taliban will face restrictions on what they can do will be tested in the coming weeks and months. But the way the Taliban will govern is not a complete mystery. On the contrary, the Taliban spent years governing parts of the country, setting up parallel structures alongside the national government in towns and villages. I spoke to Emran Feroz, an Austro-Afghan journalist based in Stuttgart, who was reported widely from across Afghanistan. He told me that not only was the takeover easily predictable, but that it was the way the conflict was reported in the West that stopped us realizing that. Before uh, the Taliban conquered Kabul on uh, Sunday, uh, almost a week ago, uh, we had the CIA saying that it would happen within the next 30 to 90 days. At the end, it happened within 24 hours. So I think that was quite surprising for many people. But at the same time, when it comes to the provincial capitals that fell to the Taliban in the days and weeks and months and also years before, uh, not the capitals years before, but the districts, um, I wasn't really surprised because in many of these areas, like, you know, for example, in northern Balkh province, in northern Kunduz province, in southern Kandahar province, in southern Uruzgan province, in all these places, the Taliban uh, were not in control of the provincial capitals, but uh, they were able to build their structures successfully around them in the districts and in the rural areas where they lived and, you know, also uh, pushed their governance and everything. And uh, I mean, they had these, Emran, they had these parallel structures for yes. years in exactly. villages, in towns, all the way. I mean, for at least 10 years, they've had it in multiple areas. Yes. And, so, in uh, sense, sure. so in a sense... You, you, did you feel that it was predictable that they would take over at some point, even if you didn't expect it quite so quickly? Yes, I think it was predictable, especially if you know some of these areas. If you had visited some of these areas, uh, it was, you know, back then during my reporting trips, it was always uh, very astonishing that like, you know, okay, you have here the provincial capital, then you, then you drive 20 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. And you're then you're in Taliban territory. And mm. there, the, you know, there's shadow governors and everything. And uh, it was just a matter of time until uh, they come out uh, from the shadows and take over everything. I mean, I, I do think that is something that perhaps was being missed in all of the reporting on Afghanistan, that there's a sense that they came out of nowhere suddenly on Sunday and took over. But actually, they've been around for a long time. Even though the Americans have been fighting them, they've been they've been there. Like you say, they've been they've had a shadow yeah. parallel structure. Exactly, and this was even the case in Kabul. Although many people are uh, surprised about uh, the fall of Kabul uh, to the Taliban, uh, I think it was in 2019 when I visited the village. Uh, in a district which is factually part of Kabul, and this district was kind of already, uh, you know, the, the, it was governed by the Taliban. And if you, I talked to the people over there, and everyone was saying, like, you know, this is the district 20 minutes away from the pres presidential palace, uh, and uh, it's called Musayi. And everyone was like, yeah, you know, Taliban are here, they're governing here, we're happy with it, 
the corrupt government uh, didn't mm -hmm. care about us. And uh, this was happening in front of the doors of uh, the Afghan politicians who were installed by the West. And it's really like, you know, I'm underlining that, that they have been installed uh, and we could see what they did during the last days and weeks, especially the president himself, who didn't win uh, a single election, actually. Uh, president Ashraf Rani, uh, who fled the country uh, when the Taliban took over and he just ran away. And mm. uh, this was, I think, a very, very symbolic thing also for many Afghans who still kind of had the illusion, also Afghans in the, within the diaspora, to be honest, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, this is a legitimate government and it somehow works, but it didn't work. I mean, you've been very critical of the way the conflict is portrayed in the West. And I think that is part of it, that sometimes it's portrayed as if it's black and white and the Afghan government are the good guys and pro-Western and pro-women and the Taliban are bad. But in your reporting trips on the ground, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was never black and white. The reality on the ground was always very complex. But at the same time, you had all the people in the US and elsewhere, you know, pushing for the narrative that it's the good war. We have the good people on our side. We are building the society. We build a functioning democracy and everything. But, you know, for those who closed, uh, who for those who watched closely, uh, since, you know, in the early days of the war on terror, when it started 20 years ago, uh, it was obvious that this would happen because uh, the Americans allied themselves with very problematic individuals, with uh, corrupt politicians, with warlords, many of them, uh, you know, very bad human rights abusers. A lot of them never cared about women's rights or anything or human rights in general. And suddenly all of them were the allies of the Americans because they tried to benefit from the war on terror. They did. They, benefit, uh, they benefited personally. They uh, enriched themselves. They undermined every kind of institution that was built uh, by the Western forces and uh, you know other Afghans who worked with them. Uh, they undermined everything, they enriched, enriched themselves, um, they literally looted. And uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, a lot of these rural areas uh, where the Taliban uh, could gain ground, uh, they, never benefited, they never benefited from it. And, um, you know, they were kind of cut out of everything. And of course, many people in these areas had a lot of anger. Do you think then, I mean, that would explain this swift sweep through the provinces by the Taliban before the fall of Kabul. But do you think then that there will be some people in, uh, in Afghanistan who will welcome the Taliban rule? Yes, of course, not all of them. It's always difficult to talk about, you know, all Afghans represent or summarize the views of all Afghans. But there are a lot of areas, I think, where people actually welcomed that this kind of structure uh, would uh, gain more ground and uh, people would kind of, you know, people save some some kind of structures and some kind of security. It might sound, might sound weird to many people in the West, like uh, what's up with security and, you know, peace and all these things and the Taliban, how is that possible? But you have to understand that in many of these areas, people are witnessing and experiencing war for almost, you know, for more than four decades. And uh, during the last 20 years also, uh, 
the, they were the main victims of the war on terror. They also suffered by many Taliban operations and everything. But, you know, every time I talk with these people, uh, they were like, we don't care. You know, one side, it's okay if one side wins, but the war has to stop. Right. We just want to uh, to see the war stopping. And, uh, yeah, this is something that many people... I think uh, would welcome. They would not really specifically welcome the Taliban themselves, but for right. them, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, you see this phenomena in other parts of the world, you know, in, in Iraq, for example, of course, in Syria, where anything that will bring peace and stability is welcomed, regardless of the particular regime, because at some point, you know, the day-to-day -day struggle of living in a war zone becomes greater than any potential political differences you might have with the Taliban, you know, in exactly. five years. Absolutely. That's the thing. And that's what many people, I think, kind of overlook, especially in the Western world. You see many observers who are like, you know, okay, but what's with all these individual rights, women rights, human rights, democracy? They start with these big things again, but they forget that, you know, for many people on the ground who witnessed all the war, uh, many, th there are many other things that uh, have priority for them. Mm. What do you think, I mean, in your observation, I mean, you have a foot in both camps, really, because you spend a lot of time in-country reporting, and then, of course, you go back to your home in Europe. What do you think is the part of the conflict that is the most underreported in the West? I think, really, that these two things uh, that I've mentioned a couple of times now during countless interviews during the last days are, you know, where the most underreported. First of all, many people in the Western world don't know, still don't know what kind of Afghan allies they had when they entered Afghanistan. And for that reason, they had the expectation that everything would uh, work out well because, uh, you know, all of these people were had good intentions and wanted to build something constructive. So they don't know about the fact that guys like uh, Abdurashid Dostum, who was a former vice president and notorious warlord, is actually one of the worst uh, human rights abusers in early Af in modern Afghan history. He he killed hundreds of people, thousands of people uh, when the war on terror started, uh, which you know the atrocity was later known as the massacre of Dasht Laili where he killed not just a lot of Taliban prisoners of war, but also many other young men he had captured and his militia. And this is, you know, on these things, the war on terror and the whole democracy project in Afghanistan was built. So this is one thing, for example, that many people don't know what kind of allies they had. And the other thing is the whole corruption issue, because... Uh, obviously, a lot of observers here are now like, hey, what's up with the Afghan army? Um, why, uh, why, why didn't they fight? Uh, what's up? All of them are cowards or something like that. And, uh, you know, this is something then, you know, if you want to explain it properly, you have to go back to the root and the root of everything in the last 20 years in Afghanistan was actually corruption. And corruption was also undermining the security sector which meant that high-ranking government officials and military officials, uh, you know, just enriched themselves and took a lot of money, aid money, which was meant uh, for their soldiers uh, to, I don't know, reinvest it in property in Dubai or something like that. So this happened over and over again. And at the end, for example, a few months ago, uh, when I was in Afghanistan the last time, uh, I visited a couple of soldiers at the front line 
and it was close to the Pakistani border, next to the border, actually, next to the Durand line. And uh, a lot of them, I mean, they didn't complain much, but you could see that they don't have much. They didn't even have, you know, they didn't have water. They didn't have good nutrition. Uh, of course, there were also many reports that uh, these soldiers uh, didn't have ammunition and everything. You could see that their life uh, wasn't really good. That uh, And you could also feel the gap between these soldiers and the political elites in Kabul. So, mm. you know, the very so same... Yes. Yeah, and so when it comes to actually having to fight the Taliban as they sweep into Kabul, they think to themselves, I'd, I'd rather switch into civilian clothing and, and save myself and my family. Yes, a lot of them, I mean, because a lot of them, uh, you know, they were fighting for years, a lot of these soldiers. Afghan security forces often had uh, high casualties, at least three to four times higher than civilian casualties during the last years. So but they were literally serving as cannon fodder. And often uh, the American, uh, not the Americans, the, the Afghan government and, you know, the superiors, they didn't even were able to uh, to pay them. They didn't pay them. And uh, of course, again, because corruption was the main issue and a lot of these high ranking generals enriched themselves so that at the end of all the billions, you suddenly had Afghan soldiers who didn't receive their salaries. And of course, if this has happened for so many years, this has happened. If this is happening for so many years, at the end, you will see that you know there is no morale, there is no will to fight. Uh, this wasn't the case everywhere. Of you know, there were also occasions where uh, soldiers tried to fight um, until the end. Uh, but often, for example, the Taliban just gave them some money because they knew probably these men didn't receive any salary. So, you know, they offered them uh, the money and said, just go home and that's mm -hmm. it. And it was understandable that, uh, you know, uh, sometime this would happen. One of the things I think is very intriguing about your reporting is that you try to put the Afghan conflict in the broader context of the war on terror, which is where it belongs. I mean, it's the very beginning of the war on terror, actually. Do you think now with the fall of Kabul, we can draw a close on the war on terror? Well, I think uh, maybe from an American perspective, uh, maybe in Washington, many people think the war on terror is over now. Uh, some people, some observers also try to analyze it through, you know, Biden is now focusing on China and on Russia and the war on terror is over and everything. So maybe it is over, but I think... Uh, Time will say because we don't know what is going to happen during the last. Uh, we don't know what is going to happen during the next uh, months and years, and um, there is there's still many things like, uh, for example, we have ISIS on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, the Islamic State uh, in Khorasan province, as they call themselves, mm -hmm. the ISIS, the Afghan ISIS cell, and recently we had reports that. Uh, the Americans fear an ISIS attack at Kabul airport. I don't know where they got this from, but uh, so there is still, I mean, you know, ISIS didn't have a, a huge role in the conflict during the last years, but it was a, it was capable of uh, killing a lot of Afghan civilians and it is still somehow operating there. And I think uh, it was also interesting to see how the Americans, the Taliban and the Afghan government fought ISIS. So, 
Um, of course, there are also, you know, kind of unproven theories, conspiracy theories, yeah. etc. That, yeah. uh, you know, this side or that side is trying to use ISIS for itself. A lot of it is not really confirmed, um, obviously, but probably we even see uh, a new anti-terror alliance in Afghanistan. It will take some time, but I don't think that it's so unrealistic that at some point, probably the Americans say to the Taliban, hey, uh, we will work with you to fight ISIS. Uh, I think that this this could even happen sometime. And yeah. so maybe the war on terror is not uh, in a way over as we expected. I wonder, um, thinking about the effect the Taliban victory might have, do you think this takeover then will have an impact on other Islamist groups? You've called the Taliban uh, one of the strongest Islamist groups in the world. And I suppose now um, when you see them driving through Kabul with US Humvees, um, yes. that's probably something that's quite realistic. Do you think there will be an effect then on, on other Islamist groups, not just in Afghanistan? Yes. I think, you know, ideologically, um, it uh, it already has a huge impact. I mean, I'm sure you also saw how different kinds of militant Islamists all around the world are now celebrating uh, the Taliban victory. And of course, you also uh, hear some, you know, from some Al-Qaeda accounts, how they celebrate it. And for, I think the Taliban, uh, for them, it will be very difficult to choose a way because the Taliban are... Uh, Islamist militants, but they have a nationalist agenda. So, uh, you know, they they want to work in Afghanistan. They are not interested in global jihad or anything like that. And uh, at the same time, they had ties and still have ties with all different kinds of groups who, you know, think differently. And <clears throat> it would be, um, it will be difficult for the Taliban, I think, to cut off these ties to all of them. Um, at the end of the day, they have to choose a path. And I think they still uh, didn't have, they, they haven't done this until now. And, um, you know, and when they make this final decision, let's see if they make it and how, they, how it will shape. But afterwards, we will see uh, what will happen to this, to all these other groups. I mean, uh, the thing is, if they if they want to do it, like you know, being in touch with all of them, letting all of them into Afghanistan, and you know all these things that a lot of people now expect. If they do this, uh, they will be very isolated again, not just globally but also regionally. And I think that at the moment, this is not uh, this this is not the interest of the Taliban. Well, this is something that I wanted to explore with you a bit. I mean, where do you think? Um, let's say Emirate 2.0 will be situated in a global context. Do you think it will be a pariah state like it was in the 1990s? Or do you think it actually could become part of the global community? I think actually uh, it is more realistic uh, seeing it becoming part of the global community uh, because the Taliban during the last years uh, for almost a decade, even longer, they try to build ties to different state players, you know, from Iran, China, of course, Pakistan, but uh, we know which is always uh, largely supporting them. But uh, all these other states too, before Kabul fell, we could hear from the Iranian side that they were not calling the Taliban the Taliban or the Taliban movement. They were calling it uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So uh, also other players like Russia have... Uh, I would say, good ties to the Taliban nowadays. 
compared to the past. Uh, globally, you know, since the Taliban opened their um, office in Qatar, uh, they tried to, you know, they started a huge PR campaign and tried to be, um, you know, more cosmopolitan and uh, globally connected and all different kinds of people reached them out and all different kinds of government reached them out too. So I think that uh, what they really don't want to be is to be isolated again. So they will try to become as legitimate as possible, which means that probably we will see them becoming, uh, you know, part of the global community and probably a lot of states uh, in the world. I mean, we the world doesn't just consist of, of the United States and Europe. Uh, what we often hear nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of concerns and uh, all these things about the Taliban um, are coming from these parts of the world. But I think that it, even these parts of the world, but especially the other parts of the world, also came to the conclusion that the Taliban are a reality in Afghanistan and they have to handle with them. Is there any part of the, the Taliban takeover that makes you optimistic for Afghanistan? Not necessarily optimistic for the Taliban, but optimistic that ordinary Afghans can fare better now than they have during these 20 years of war? Well, it depends. To be honest, you know, I'm in touch with many people in Afghanistan at the moment. I'm in touch with friends, with relatives, <clears throat> with some people who I even don't know properly, but I try to help, like people who used to work with NATO forces, people who were part of the Afghan army. And, you know, all of these people want to get out. All of them want to get out. And uh, I think it's understandable because now again, they look towards a very uncertain future. And um, it, they don't know what's going to happen. And at the moment, there is no guarantee that uh, things will not escalate. So at the same time, of course, you have many people in all these rural areas. Uh, also, not all of them, but a lot of them who, who, uh, who are more optimistic and uh, who don't see drones in, uh, on the sky or who don't see military operations and all these things but a lot of people i'm in touch with uh, are very pessimistic actually and this also affects my own opinion i think so uh, at the moment i'm not really so much optimistic because obviously uh, as many people also expected i mean the taliban took over but i i don't see any proper plan they have on one side on the other side as i said uh, they they there is still this huge PR machine of them, uh, which tries to portray them as you know different Taliban that they have been changed and etc. All these things, but at the same time, uh, I'm in touch with people who are hiding themselves from them. I'm in touch with people who are with people whose relatives are still uh, imprisoned by the Taliban and who wonder what happened about all these amnesty issues. So. And also there are reports about journalists uh, who have been hunted down, journalists who fear to be persecuted, uh, human rights activists, women rights activists. So there is also these things that are happening, which, of course, uh, don't make me so much optimistic at the moment. Only a few days after the Taliban takeover of Kabul, journalists inside and outside the country are still trying to make sense of what is at the least, a catastrophic failure of intelligence. Inside the country, many who worked with the US administration are in hiding or attempting to leave as the Taliban begin building their Emirate 2.0 and Afghans face 
a very uncertain future. Thank you to all our guests today. You can find them on Twitter. Shelley Kittleson is at Shelley Kittleson. Fazal Minallah Qazizai at Fazal Qazizai. Emron Feroz is at Emron underscore Feroz. I've been your host, Faisal Yafai. At New Lines, we have been following this story for months, detailing the build-up to the fall of Kabul and reporting from the ground from across the country. As Afghanistan moves into a new phase, we will continue to follow the story very closely. You can follow along with us at newlinesmag.com.